If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning. And uh, this is not particularly a Mother's Day message, and you'll find out that pretty quickly. And uh, the reason why is we're in a series entitled Authentic. We're walking through the book of 1 John. And uh, as we do, as we walk through books together, what we end up doing is we uh, are just taking the next passage that comes. And this is the next passage that comes. And it's just interesting that it lands on Mother's Day. So there's nothing intended to say about moms and deception, okay? So if you're trying to correlate the two, uh, you can quit right now. Uh, but this morning, we're, we're going to look at a, a, this passage. Remember, as we're walking through this series, um, John, when he wrote this, this letter, he was uh, addressing one of the issues in his day, which was a thinking called Gnosticism, which believed that you could have these kind of compartments of life, that you could have your spiritual side and your physical side, and both of them had nothing to do with the other, which means the spirit was good, but the flesh was bad, and so you could do whatever you wanted to do in the flesh and the physical, and had nothing to do with the spiritual, and so there was this self-deception going on in the lives of people that, that, that Jesus obviously demonstrated the exact opposite, that we are, are, are all one person, we're, we're unified, we're authentic, true and true, and because of that, you can't, you can't live in these compartments, and that, that comes with this deception or the masks that we put on to kind of hide who we really are inside. So in that, in, li- in line with that thinking, John takes a, a t- so some time in his book here to address for you and I this concept of deception that comes in the form of either a person or it can come in, the, in terms of characteristics or situations, and we'll talk about that. But one of the things that you and I have to understand about deception is we don't talk about it a lot, but deception is something that you will never realize you're being deceived when you're being deceived. It's not like, hey, I think I'm being deceived right now. It doesn't work that way. Deception comes as as a, a lie that's clothed in somewhat of the truth to make you think that it's real. But in reality, when you kind of pull the mask back, you realize that it's, it's, it's deception is, is rotten to its core, and it doesn't have what God's intended for our lives. And that's why we have to take some time to talk about that. And again, it's important because most of us would say, well, I would never be deceived. I'm a pretty sharp person. I'm not very gullible. I'll know when, I'll always know the difference between a truth and what is false in my life. So I don't need to even worry about this. That is deception. Because all of us are susceptible to being deceived. And that's when we see something that looks to be the truth, but if we look deeper and we look harder and we're aware that it could, there could be deception involved, we might see a different reality than what's really there. So I want you to take a look at just this, this is a short clip. There's a, there's a TV show uh, called The Carbonaro Effect. Anybody ever seen it? Okay. And this is amazing because this guy's an illusionist that literally makes you think what you're seeing is real. And it blows your mind. So I tried to find the shortest one. This is one of the shortest ones that he does, and it happens all the time. So I want you to see, this is exactly what deception looks like. So let's take a look at this together. This is just one of those empty boxes that gets reshipped. Oh, sure. To Perry Ship. To Perry Ship? Actually, it's Darwin's food. Did you give me this one? Oh, yeah. Has this just been dropped off? Yeah, people are just dropping them off, and I'm back here trying to... Oh, that's exactly the same thing. These are empties? No, I don't think this one's empty. This one was one of those ones that has open on site. Well, I'm supposed to open these right away. Yeah. They, um... That was not in that box. Yeah, that's how they're packing them now. They, um... How'd they do that? They invert the air inside these when we get them, so the sporting place comes to pick them up and makes them lighter for shipping. Really? Yeah. But, uh, we get them, we unpack them, and they come in and put them in, like, more, like, professional cases or whatever. That... 
So I just watched a bowling ball come into its real form. Yeah. Yeah, don't you know they just invert the air? That's all they do, right? It looks real, but it's not. It's fake. There's no way their bowling ball goes from weighing a few ounces to a few pounds just like that because a guy opens a box. But it looks that way, doesn't it? And that's the way deception comes, and that's why it's important that we take some time as we take this next passage to understand what Jesus wants us to know about the concept of deception in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let me read verses 18 to verse 27 of 1 John uh, chapter 2. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, uh, are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning what abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, it is no lie, just, <clears throat> just as it has taught you, abide in him. So there's a lot going on there, but before we actually get into the passage, let me kind of give you the, the overall kind of blanket of what we're talking about. So John talks about the Antichrist. What this passage is not about is, uh, is actually identifying a singular human being who comes as the Antichrist. We know from Scripture that at the end of time, or in, end, in times, we will see an Antichrist will rise up, somebody who will garner following and affection from people, particularly Christians, and have some kind of authority in the world, and they will put themselves out as though they are Christ, but only to deceive people into walking away from Jesus in their lives. So in this passage, John's not trying to identify that singular person that will come in human history. Uh, the reason it's important to understand that is because we like to do that. We like to identify. In fact, throughout human history, there's probably been like a thousand or two thousand different people that have been identified as the Antichrist, right? And it usually is the political opponent of you, right? It's like what? Right now, Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Jo Donald Trump is the Antichrist, right? Whoever you don't like is your enemy is the Antichrist. That's not what John is, is about here. But what he's talking about, he's talking about the characteristics and the personality that comes along with that that is deceptive in nature, that finds its way into our churches and into our relationships, that even though we can't identify a singular person, there are, there are times and places where people will take on these kind of characteristics in their life, and this is a warning about that to say, listen, don't allow yourself to be deceived by people or groups or characteristics in someone else's life that may lead you away from who Jesus wants you to be. And so that, it's with that understanding this morning that we're going to talk about this. So we're not, I'm not going to give, I'm not pulling out a chart. I'm not naming names. We're not talking about the Antichrist. We're talking about the characteristics that come to bear on deception in our lives. So the first four things I want to touch on in the passage are really exposing what is false, where John kind of highlights these are the things that you and I need to know about these characteristics that come sometimes through other people in our lives that can be very deceiving. The first one is this. It comes from 
among us. This is important. Verse 19, he says, if they went out from us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Every major deception or what we would categorize as a cult that has come into existence in, in the world normally and usually has some root tied to a religious kind of beginning point. A lot of times cults start where? In the church. It isn't some outsider that comes in with some new teaching or some new thought or, or something that's going to sound really good. It's somebody who's maybe even been raised in the church and has come along with some new doctrine or new teaching or new, new following, and so they come from within. And, and why is that so dangerous? Because we're more apt to say yes to what we're familiar to. But when it's from the outside and it's a stranger, it's easy. That's, that's what we teach our kids, right? From, from the youngest age, especially in schools now, what do we teach our kids? Stranger danger right? So if you see a stranger, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to yell for help. You're supposed to say, stranger, danger. That's great, but there's a flaw in that. What if it's somebody that's familiar to them? What if it's a family member? What if it's, if it's an estranged parent? What if it is a, a distant relative? What if it is a friend from down the street? Then what happens is a child loses all of that ability to be defensive because their defenses fall. Why? Because I know this person. And the same thing is true for us is that it, we're like, I'm going to know someone's trying to deceive me because they're going to come from the outside and they're going to look so different than anything else I've ever seen. I'm going to know. That's not true. They're going to look like the person sitting next to you, which, by the way, don't make this about someone next to you and say, oh, you're the Antichrist. I knew it. <laughs> but to think, just to think about that, that's, that's what we have to be aware of is that it's going to be familiar. It's going to be somebody that you know. And that's why you and I, even within the church, we have to be on our guard. Because even in the slightest ways, people can begin to draw our affection, our attention away from Jesus, in a sense, and ultimately onto them. And they become the one that holds the power and the authority in our life, not Jesus. And the second thing, exposing what is false also has to do with it, that it causes division among us. So, John goes on, he says in the next, right, next part of verse 19, for if they had been of us, they would have com continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. What did they do? They were with us, but then they left us, which means they separated from us. What deception always leads to is disunity and division, always. There is never this, this feeling where, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm living in deception, and we're all in unity. No, unless all of us are deceived. What happens, there's always, a, when it comes to being deceived by another person or about these characteristics, there comes a moment where you have to switch your allegiance, and that allegiance being switched requires that you separate from what you historically been a part of. Circle of relationships, churches, whatever it is, you know that there has to be some separation. Why? Because what deception does is it, it makes you think that you have a new truth that's better than the old truth, and that you're smarter than everybody else, and that's why you have to separate, because they just don't get it. They're, the, they're not on the inside. I'm on the inside. I get this, and that's what John's talking about, that this division begins to happen, and what happens when we, when we experience that is that's why we have, like, a cult, cults usually start where? They start inside the church, and then they spin off and say, oh, we have the inside scoop with God. You should follow us. And it doesn't just relate to church, it relates in life. People come along and they garner the support and the affection of other people, and before you know it, they cause a division amongst people who used to be united. 
Happens all the time. Jordan started playing uh, competitive basketball when he was in third grade, but when he was in fifth grade, we got him on a travel team. So we wanted him, and, and um, it was four of us dads that got together. We pulled our sons together and some of the other kids that were pretty talented, and we wanted them to experience a higher level of competition than just what we had in our city. So we put this, this travel team together, and the point was to obviously play more basketball and to have more uh, competition. So we started into the season, and so... Th- basically three or four dads, we're coaching the team, and, and about two games in, we find out that one of the kids on the team, his, his grandfather was a high school coach, very successful high school coach, and so he, he shows up to a practice one day, and he says, hey, he goes, I would love to help any way that I could if, if you want me to, because I have a little experience in coaching. We're like, all of us dads, like, we played in high school, but we didn't coach, so we would love that help, and so he comes and starts showing up to practices, and he's got great insight. He's got some really good knowledge of the game, and so we're letting him have more and more influence, and, and so uh, the, the boys were having a great time. They were winning some and losing some, and so we had this great season. We got to the end of the season, but as the season went on, we could see that he was getting a little bit more influence, a little bit more control, and we thought, this is good because he knows what he's doing, and then when the season ended, I remembered thinking, I was a little concerned, but not a lot, just a little concerned. And so then the next season came. So now all these boys are now in sixth grade. And so now we start pulling the team together again. And he says, no, let's not pull the team. Let's do a tryout because we want to make sure that we, we get the most talented players. And so we're like, let's do a tryout. So we hold a tryout, not realizing what his plan was all along is behind the scenes he was talking to the kids and the parents of the kids who were the most talented. And so he had this mock fake tryout so that he could select and hive off the most talented kids and then go start his own team and leave us behind. Those kids got hived off, those eight or ten kids, and didn't play with anybody else in the city of Newburgh the whole time until Jordan got into high school. And it was a point of tension. Every year, there's this elite team that's running and, and under the name of Newburgh, and then it's the leftovers. And it caused tension amongst everybody. And it started when? It started when somebody from within decided to take over and take control so now he could do what he wanted to do. Happens in life, happens in church. That's why in our relationships, we have to be aware of division because it happens, and that's why John highlights it. Third thing, we expose what's false when we understand that it has to do ultimately with Jesus. Verse 22 and 23, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father... Whoever confesses the Son, another word is acknowledges the Son, has the Father also. So what John's saying is I'm going to narrow it down to deception, especially deception within the church, deception that's most important. It all comes down to who is Jesus. That's it. Because every strange teaching, every deception comes along with a slight modification of who Jesus is. Every major cult in the world has an understanding of who Jesus is, acknowledges something about Jesus, but has a twist on who Jesus is that is, is in, in opposition to what Scripture says is true about Jesus. And if you look at it, it always comes down to that every single time. And if you talk about, like if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, ask them this question. Don't let them take you through the Scriptures. Just ask them one question. Who is Jesus? And they'll say, oh, he was the son of God. They'll give all these titles and say, no, let's get to the bottom line. Who is is Jesus? What's the identity of who Jesus is? And if you get them down to the bottom line, you know who they're going to say he is? They're not going to say that he was the son of God ultimately. They're not even going to say he was God in human flesh. They're going to say he's Michael the archangel. That's who the Jehovah's Witnesses will hold who Jesus is. That's not biblical. 
But if you just push deeper, you will always see it comes down to Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to sit back and say, okay, well, I believe in the historic Christian faith that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh, that he, he died for my sins, and he rose on the third day, and he ascended back to the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and we can go through the, all the creeds. And that's extremely important. We have to get back to Jesus. But I'll tell you something that trumps our theology and our understanding in terms of knowledge of Jesus is if we obey Jesus. That's different. That's different. See, because John says if they confess or, there's another word, acknowledge, is not just like, okay, I confirm the facts about who Jesus is. Even the demons can do that. They know who he is. The difference is, is if we acknowledge and confess that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, which ultimately means he is the Lord over all, it'll change the way we live our life. Because for some people, don't tell me your theology about Jesus. Don't tell me your knowledge and volumes of knowledge about who Jesus is. Show me by your life, is he really the Lord? Do you really obey him? Because that's, that's, the, that's the dividing factor. I know really intelligent people that struggle with obedience because they know the facts about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And that's what we have to get down to, is knowing Jesus. Jesus actually had this kind of dialogue with his disciples. In Matthew 16, he asks them the question. He knows that his popularity is rising, so he pulls his disciples aside and says, who do people say that I am? What's the identity people are giving to me? What are they saying about me? And they're throwing out some different things. And then Peter, not under his own ability, but Peter, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to Jesus, you are the Christ you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And what, what does Jesus say? Yeah, Peter, you didn't come up with that. You're smart, but you're not that smart. That's the paraphrase. That came to you from God. And so, but when you think about that, then Peter acknowledges that. And we think about this thing of what does it really mean to, to know Jesus? And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Knowing Jesus means obeying Jesus, but obeying is not compliance. Obeying is through a loving relationship that you know how much he loves you. And so therefore, you want to obey him. But that's, that's, that's so important. We struggle with obedience. Another, another story that Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 6, and this, is, this one's tough, is that we've all probably are familiar with this parable. It's, it's, the, it's the parable and the story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on sand. Anybody heard that one before? And we read that, and we always take this as the truth that many times we take away from what Jesus was saying. Now, this is true in other parts of Scripture, but not in the story that Jesus is saying. We say that the man who built his house on the rock built his house on Jesus. Yes and no. Because if you understand what Jesus is saying, he said, no, the man built his house on obedience to me. That's the rock. Jesus is the rock, but obedience to him is the rock that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 6. And that's why he says, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? That's what he says. Is it because he's trying to force you into, no, what he's saying is, listen, if I'm really the Lord of your life, if you acknowledge me and you confess me and you believe who I say that I am and I'm demonstrating that, then your life is going to reflect that in the way that you follow me. Then people will know, not by your theology or about what you open with your mouth and say with your mouth, but they'll know by your lifestyle if Jesus truly is the Lord of your life because you've surrendered all to him and you will follow him and you'll do anything that he calls you to do. Why? Because he's in charge. That's the ultimate demonstration. It has to do with Jesus. And then the final thing of, and we'll, then we'll, we'll shift into understanding the truth, but exposing the false also is, is it's ultimately about influence and allegiance. Verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
trying to deceive you, which means John's saying there's an intention here. Isn't somebody stumbling into trying to deceive you? Somebody's calculatingly going about trying to pull you away from Jesus and trying to deceive you. But that can happen even, I think, sometimes we allow it to happen even unintentionally. We will allow ourselves. And I think there are people who start out in gaining influence in the church for a good purpose to follow Jesus. But once they get the power and they get the authority and they get the prestige and they get the personality and they get the fame, something happens in them. And they start to draw people not towards Jesus, but to themselves. And that's ultimately what deception does, is it pulls your attention and your focus and your affection off of Jesus and it puts it onto a human being. That's what happens. And this is really important for us to understand because John is writing, he's obviously presented the gospel in his gospel, and people have read that and understand that who Jesus is, and so he's trying to underscore the importance of this once again. But understanding that you and I, especially modern day, I think the way that this applies to us is that we have to be careful in the church today that we don't follow personalities, we follow Jesus. We have too much celebrity in the church. We follow celebrity pastors. We have a problem following Jesus. I know that's kind of like, oh, yeah. And it's not even pastors who try to be celebrity. We make them celebrities. And that's dangerous. Why? It's dangerous on both sides. Because please, as a pastor, don't ever do that to a pastor. Don't ever give the pastor that much power and authority that that one person becomes the sole lens for your life in understanding Jesus. That's too much responsibility for one human being because we're corrupt. Pastors are corrupt too, just so you know. I know newsflash. When they're given too much power and authority, their humanity can kick in. And then what happens, it becomes about them and not about Jesus any longer. But do you do that in your life? I, you know, it, I've been pastoring for long enough and I've seen this and just one of the things that always bothers me, and I'm hoping that we are less and less about doing this at, our, at Antioch, but I've talked to people who are like, oh yeah, I, I didn't go to church Sunday. Why not? Oh, because the pastor wasn't speaking. So that means your definition of church is one human being who opens the Bible and that's it. That's your definition of church. What about the hundreds of people that you should be in fellowship with that should be there? What about the person that probably stood up, stood up and opened the scriptures that the Holy Spirit was using that you needed to hear that morning, but it wasn't coming through the vehicle you wanted to hear it from? And if we understand that, that means that God speaks through all of us. It doesn't mean that you don't respect leaders. You do. But you never put a place, person in a position where they're the only voice for you in your life. The only person who's the only voice is Jesus himself. So if we understand that, and that's why in the church, what do we do? As sheep, we go to the coolest, hippest, most creative, most funny, most best communicating pastor, and we say, wow, look at how much the church is growing. No, we just think entertainment's better down the street. That's what we do. <laughs> Seriously, ask some of the pastors of some of the largest churches, and they'll tell you that's the case. They'll tell you, and they didn't, they didn't intend to start it that way, but that's what happens. God, yes, does use pastors to speak the truth from his word. But it's only as a way of getting us to Jesus. Don't ever worship a pastor. Just worship Jesus. I'll get off my soapbox and we'll move on now. Okay. Three other things I want to touch on, and that is this. How do we embrace the truth? What does that look like? Three things. Look at verses 20 and 21. John instructs us we have to remember what is true. 
He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is, is of the truth. So what is he saying? You already know the truth. So if you've made a commitment to follow Jesus in your life, and we'll talk more about this in the next point, but there's something about your life now that is established on a foundational truth that you know whether you know it or not. And it's something you have to go back to and remind yourself of as you move forward in following Jesus and there's this tendency to take a shortcut or find the easy way, but there really is no easy way in following Jesus. That's why he says, well, you have to lay down your cross daily and follow me, that you have to be willing to deny yourself to follow me. Those are difficult things. Why? Because that means following Jesus is not going to be easy. But that means that there's, there's a foundational truth that John's talking about and our understanding of who Jesus is that we have to go back to as our foundation, especially when times are difficult in life and we want an easy fix to the pain in our life, they will look somewhere else for something instead of going back to the foundation of who Jesus is, the basics of the gospel that Jesus gave his life for you and I, that he died on the cross for our sin. And in doing that, because he was perfect, death couldn't hold him, so he rose from the dead to guarantee life through him forever. And there is no other option for us. That's the option. He's the only one that restores. He's the only one that forgives. He's the only one that can transform. He's the only one that can heal. He's the only one that has any of that power. And yet we'll go to other places and other people and other things to try to find something to alleviate the condition of our life. But we go back to what? The basics. That's why as a church, over the last few years, some people have been really excited. Other people are like, really? We're going to talk about Jesus again? We're going to look at the Gospels again. Yes. Why? Because it's about Jesus. Yeah. It has to be. Otherwise, we're just pretending and we're playing games. Jesus is the Lord of the church. We are the bride of Christ. It is ultimately all about him. And we have to go back to that and be reminded of that. For some of you today, it's almost like, oh, yeah, Jesus. It's about him. It's about going back to what I, uh, the foundation of my faith, about what this, when I, when I first said yes to him, what was that all about? How did it get so complicated? Same thing is true. Another basketball analogy. So I, the coach I had in high school, one of, probably the best coach I ever had in my life, great basketball coach, knew the game really well, taught me how to shoot the ball better than I ever thought I could. I came in as a sophomore, and I thought after playing my whole life basketball, I knew how to play basketball until I met him. I realized I don't know anything. And then I learned how to actually shoot the basketball, the mechanics of actually shooting a basketball, from how my elbows position to what my wrist does to what my knees do to how my body aligns itself, everything, top to bottom. So from 10th grade to my senior year, I had to relearn how to shoot a basketball. And by the, end, by the time I was in my senior year, I was one of our best shooters. And it wasn't because I was perfectly talented all on my own. It was because someone came along and said, listen, this is how you do this. And then when I got out of high school, and every time I played basketball, you go through those times when you're like, you, you forget the mechanics and the basics of what you're supposed to do, and that's when you start to get off track. So I was in a, in a tournament in our church up in Newburgh uh, a number of years ago, and, and it, was a, it was a pretty big tournament. We were doing it at a men's retreat that was kind of a men's retreat of a bunch of churches come together. So we had to play seven basketball games in a day, and it was exhausting. And so about the fourth game in of that day, I was tired, and, and we was three on three, so you're like constantly moving, and so I remember I started one game, and we're getting beat pretty badly, and I'm like, oh, for 10. I mean, seriously, I can't throw a pee in the ocean. It was embarrassing. So I'm like working really hard, and so I just, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm a shooter. I'm just going to shoot my way out of this slump. I'm shooting, and I'm just, I'm airballing. I mean, it's just ridiculous, 
And so I had a good friend who's up in Oregon who's also a basketball player, and he knows the game really well, and he knows me really well because we played a lot of basketball together. And so he's sitting on the sideline, and about halfway through this game, I hear this deep voice say, bend your knees. That's all I heard. And I'm like, the voice of God has come to me, right? (laughs) And when he said it, it was like, oh, yeah, that's the problem. No joke. Next time the ball gets inbounded, I take it, I dribble to the three-point line, I bend my knees, and I shoot it, and bam, I nailed it. And I turn around to my friend, I'm like, ooh, you're smart. You, You know me pretty well. What was he saying? He's saying, go back to what you originally knew about shooting. Remember what you learned in high school? Go back to that, because you're forgetting it right now, and that's why you're off track, and that's why you're missing. Same thing is true about the foundation of who Jesus is in our life. That can never get old. If it gets old, we're in trouble. We have to go back again to who he is. And then, going on verse 24 and 25, embracing the truth also means to remain in what is true. Not only remember, but remain, not to get off from it. He says, let, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, that if you, you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Abide in him. Stay connected to him. Stay connected to who he is, the truth of who he is. Don't get off track and away from that. Because when we do, when we start to fade a bit, when we start to drift a little bit away, then we start to believe anything. We do. We have a tendency to be, and I'll be honest, in the church, sometimes we are kind of gullible people. We will buy into things, especially if someone comes along and says, thus saith the Lord. We're like, really, did he? And we forget, yeah, he already said something as a foundation, that all other things that come from him will be the foundation of, but we'll go after anything. And we'll go after, we're that way in our culture too. We're gullible. That's why infomercials are still popular. That's why telemarketers still call us. Because one of you still buys stuff from a telemarketer. Please knock it off. (laughs) You're gullible enough on the phone. Really? It's going to make my life better if I just buy it right now and this special deal just for me? Right? Anybody remember like the Ginsu knives back in like the 70s and 80s that would come on, you know? I remember when I was homesick from school and I turned the TV on. It was like Ginsu knives all day long, right? You had to buy those. And then we graduated like, you know, to the Snuggie. Remember the Snuggie? Because it gets cold and you want a full body, you know, cloth that you can put your arms through. And, you know, by the way, I was talking about this first, and someone came up to me and, like, adamant Snuggie fan. She was almost offended that I would say that. She's got a Snuggie. I'm like, great for you. And then we got OxyClean, which actually does work. But it's like, what's the next thing, right? By the way, I get to touch on something. I'm probably going to get cards because I'm like, I use OxyClean all the time. It makes my whites whiter. I'm like, you're a spokesperson, aren't you, right? But... What is it that we do? We always buy into stuff. And you know what we do in the church? In fact, I think one of the, the, the biggest in my lifetime kind of faux pas of the church was Y2K. Because the church bought into this idea that the world was coming to an end. And it wasn't that it was a prophet telling us. It's just the panic of, oh my goodness, it's going to go from 1999 to 2000 and the computers can't handle it. Everything is going to crash. Jesus is going to come back and the end is going to be here. Anybody remember that? I was pastoring at the time, and I could not tell you how many times people came to me, oh, pastor, you need to be preaching about this. We need to be stockpiling. We need to make sure we have enough food and water that when the world comes to an end, we can survive. And I'm like, if the world comes to an end, nobody's going to survive. 
And seriously, people were telling me, we need to have these big barrels out in the lobby, and we need to collect food for, for months and months and months, and you need to make sure you tell everybody that when it comes. And so what, everybody remember, you if you were alive, remember what happened when the date changed over from 1999 to 2000? You remember what happened? Nothing. <laughs> and the, the world looks at the church and says, really? Can you be that gullible? See, sometimes when we start to drift... You know, that's why Jesus said, especially when it comes to dates and times and history, nobody knows the date and the hour when Jesus returns. Nobody can pull out a chart. No one can predict that. There's indicators that let us know when it might be getting near, but there's nothing that we can do to say, yeah, this is it. So we don't have to buy into that. We don't have to be deceived by those things. We go back to the truth of who Jesus is and what we've known from the beginning, and we remain connected to him the more deeply embedded you are in your faith in Jesus, the easier it is for you to identify right away there's a deception going on around me. You can see it. But the, the further we get from him, the more we become deceived. And this is, and this is the final thing. Embracing the truth is also has to do with relying on what and who is true. So John says, By the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's not saying that you and I should be arrogant and say, you know, I know it all. No one should ever have input in me. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and, in, uh, and it is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. So John is saying, listen, when you make a commitment to Jesus, God sends his spirit as a deposit in your life, and you have what's called an anointing. Now, we would we will use that term in other places where somebody may be anointed in terms of their gifting. But this passage is talking about really what happens at the moment of salvation, that there is an anointing by the power of the Holy Spirit that's deposited in you so that you have the Spirit of God living you in such a way that he will ultimately help you to know the difference between the truth and a lie. That's why in John chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That means that you have somebody inside of you that can help you identify what is true and what is false. The spirit of God living in us. And that's what's amazing. If I'm staying connected to Jesus, that means the spirit of God is working in me that immediately when deception shows up, up my radar goes off. Like That doesn't seem right. It's a spiritual intuition that God gives you if you've said yes to Jesus so that you and I don't have to live every single day. Oh, no, I'm going to be deceived. Oh, no, I can't believe that. And we cover our eyes and we just go and retreat. Why? Because the world is bad and everything is going to come to an end and I don't want to be deceived. That's not the way God designed us to live. We don't have to live in that fear. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in us. Truth lives in us. So we can listen to that truth. And as long as we are checking our motives and tossing out our agenda we can hear the truth clearly. But if we have an agenda, we always have a way to take God's truth and curve it into what we want it to be, as opposed to just listening to God and ex accepting the truth of what he says. And that means a lot of times the Spirit of God will tell us the, tr the difference between a truth and a lie, and we won't like it because we'll want to believe the lie anyway. That's how you know it's truth. Usually it's guiding you away from something that sounds appealing and sounds good, and you're like, oh, it's, it's gonna answer all my problems. Nothing answers all of your problems. In fact, Jesus, even in this world, doesn't answer all your problems. How many know that's true? But he guarantees forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation, and a life that's eternal. That's what we get. That's the promise that we have. We have the kingdom of God that is not, is not fully here yet, but it is present, and we can experience a taste of it that says, hey, we get more when, when the end comes. Let me close with this. The worship team, you can come and join me. We're going to finish with a few, a few songs of worship. 
if you and I were to really understand the intuition that we have within us, which is God's spirit, that means that we could live a life that will allow us to see around us the deception that people are either trying to perpetrate on us or the deception that is found in other people's lives. That the Holy Spirit can do that if we're willing to really look closely. Anybody ever gone on a ride along with a police officer? You may be, there may be police officers in the room. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that because police officers have a whole nother, nother level of intuition. And it could be because it's something in them or because they've been on the job long enough. They see things that nobody else sees. And I, and I saw this firsthand a number of years ago. I was on a ride along with, uh, actually ended up being a friend of mine in Newburgh and he was a police officer and he was working the, the night shift and so we were out at night. It was probably 11.30 or close to 11.45 and so as we're kind of doing patrol and we're going around the city and Newburgh is a pretty sleepy town and usually a whole lot, there's not a lot going on, uh, especially at night. People actually do go home and go to bed and go to sleep. But so we're driving uh, along and we tr- passed by this couple that was just walking down the street. And I noticed them, and he noticed them. And, and I know when I saw them, I thought, oh, it just looks like a boyfriend or girlfriend, out a little bit late. Now, I'm also thinking George Fox University is in town, and so you see a lot of younger people in, in the community sometimes. So I'm thinking, oh, probably some college students that are a little bit too late, and so they're walking. That's just what my mind's thinking. So we drive by, and like 200 yards down the street, he pulls a U-turn. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, Something's not right. I mean, what do you mean it's not right? This is a couple of, he goes, something's not right. And I'm thinking, okay, Mr. Police Officer, you know, show me what's not right. So by the time we turned around, they had kind of walked off the sidewalk. They were in a parking lot. So we pulled into the parking lot. He pulls up right behind them. And he hops out of the car and they stop. And so he starts this conversation with them. And within five minutes, this is what he, un- he finds out. I-, I could not believe this. I almost looked for hidden cameras to say, no, you're, you're punking me right now because this hasn't really happened. This girl was a 15-year-old runaway who was strung out on meth. This guy was about 25 years old and he was her pimp. And the only way she was surviving is that she was exchanging sex with him and sex with other people for drugs. And they were living in this hotel right there in Newburgh. He got that in five minutes. I just saw two young people walking down the street. And before you know it, there's five squad cars. Then he's on the phone with her mom who lived in a city about 15 miles away and she's on her way driving back to pick up her 15-year-old daughter who had run away. And this guy's in handcuffs now and he's going off to prison for a long time. I just saw a couple walking down the street. He saw something more. On a much grander scale, what is more powerful than the intuition of a police officer? It's the power of God's spirit in his people. That you and I don't have to live in fear of deception, but we have to be aware of deception. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit and ask him honestly, Lord, do I need to see something that I'm not seeing in this situation? Do I need to hear something I'm not hearing about this teaching? Do I need to understand something about this person that I don't see at the surface? It doesn't mean that there's a demon behind every bush and every person is out to get us, but it does mean that God has given us his spirit as a way to walk in truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that not only did through your death and your resurrection, the foundation of our faith, did you bring salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation back to God to us, but you gave us the gift of your spirit who you deposit in us that guarantees our future, but also brings us into the truth of who you are, the truth of the world that we live in, the truth about our lives, the truth about other people. So I ask, Lord, if if there is any deception in our lives, 
right now. If there is anything that maybe we don't even see right now and you want us to see that, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would turn the lights on in our life. Lord, that you would pull the mask away from the things around us so that we would see clearly, authentically what is in front of us and then be able to respond according to what your Spirit is doing in us. Lord, I pray your covering, your protection over us that we would not, not only would we not be deceived, but we would not become the ones that do deceive. Lord, if we're in places of authority and leadership, I pray, Lord, that you would help our motives to be right and pure as we lead people, not to be at a place that we'd ever try to garner the attention and affection that only goes to you, but, Lord, that we would simply be a conduit that draws people into a deeper relationship with you today, Lord Jesus. And if you're here and you've never known Jesus, but you believe that you're living a lie and there's deception in your life, by his death, his resurrection, his forgiveness, he invites you to life that brings truth to who you are and to the world around you and to what life is supposed to be. And if that's your desire for the first time today, you can say yes to that truth by saying, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to surrender to him. And we're going to worship in a moment. You're going to hear some theology in a song, some truth about who Jesus is. I want you to let that settle in. And if your desire is to make that kind of commitment today, to walk into the light and into the truth of who Jesus is, then when we conclude today, I'm going to ask you to come find me. I'll hang out towards the back. I'd love to pray with you, to talk with you about what that means to walk into the truth of who Jesus is in your life. So Lord Jesus, we want to embrace fully your truth and your spirit so that we can live in the truth and not live in the lie or the deception around us. In Jesus' name, amen.